A hemiola is not, in fact, a rare celestial event. It's a polyrhythmic figure featuring a three-count superimposed over two or four. Hemiolas aren't super common in popular music, but it's always nice to see them, so they are sort of like the aurora borealis of music. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about hemiolas on a 4-4 chorus, just a three-beat chorale under the aurora borealis. That didn't make any sense, but you know what does? Listener support. Strong Songs is entirely listener supported, which means I am able to make this show, which I love so much, thanks to all of you out there who have become patrons. If you like Strong Songs and want to chip in, go to patreon.com slash strong songs and you can. On this episode, we're opening the mailbag for some questions on newly invented instruments, Evanescence Piano, Fish and Kashibashi Counting, what it means to be a musician's musician, and what to do when the concert you're attending is way too loud. There's plenty more too, so let's get into it. for lengthy preamble we got a lot of questions to get through and i want to fit as many as i can into this episode as always you can send your questions to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com i read every email i get even if i don't have a chance to include your question on the show i will definitely check it out so yeah listeners at strongsongspodcast.com don't be a stranger our first question comes from phil who writes back when it was on the radio more often my wife and i would play a game with kelly's milkshake where we would dramatically point in the air every time the door chime sound would play trying to predict when the cue would come in We did this with the regular sounds and other songs as well and often got very good at predicting when those sounds would come in, but to this very day, we can never quite pick when the door chime sound is going to play in Milkshake. Can you please help? Okay, so this is Milkshake by Kellys, and just in case you missed it, this is the bell sound that Phil is wondering about. So this is a pretty cool tune. It was a hit back in 2003, produced by Neptunes, which, man, remember when everything on the radio was produced by Neptunes? Maybe you don't remember that because I am a lot older than you are, but it's a real snapshot of a moment in time for me. And yeah, this chime, it sounds like a glockenspiel or a sample of a glockenspiel or something, some kind of a mallet instrument. It does follow a set pattern, but it's a kind of irregular pattern, so I can see why you might have trouble predicting when it's going to happen. Fortunately, it's pretty easy to nail it down once you know what to do, because it is according to a regular pattern. So this song is arranged in eight bar phrases, the verse is eight bars, the chorus is eight bars, and you can think of each of those phrases as a pair of four bars. So there's four bars, then another four bars, which gets you eight. And the thing you want to get your head around is that the chime plays once every four bars, but it plays at a different point, depending on whether you're in the first group of four bars or the second group of four bars. So in the first group of four bars, it plays on the fourth beat of the second bar. Let's Let's count it. Two, three, and one. So that's half of the eight bar chorus. In the second four bars of the chorus, that chime triggers at the end of the third bar instead of the second bar. So now let's count that. And one, two, three, four, two, two, 
two, three, four, two, three, four. And that's the pattern for the song. First, the second bar. And then in the second group of four bars, it plays at the end of the third bar. It's a regular, irregular pattern, and because of that, it keeps you off balance even though it is repeating a cycle. So let's count the whole thing. One, two, three, four, two, two, three, three, two, three, four, four, two, three, four. One, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, three, two, three, four, two, three, four. So that's what you have to do. Split the eight bar phrase into a pair of four bar phrases, and then the bell alternates between the fourth beat of the second bar and the fourth beat of the third bar. I hope that gives you what you need to nail it down. And I gotta say, this game sounds pretty fun. Em and I might have to start playing it. Elijah writes, I have a question about a song called Going Under, which is on Evanescence's debut album, Fallen. I'm wondering about the piano part. It seems to be playing almost random notes at one point. They might be in the same key as the rest of the song, but maybe it goes in and out of the key. Anyway, the notes sound like they shouldn't work, but somehow they do. I was hoping you could break down what's happening there. Thanks. Okay, Elijah, I'm happy to do that. Let's listen to uh, a little bit of Evanescence's song, Going Under. And yeah, put your ears on and listen to that piano and see what you hear. So yeah, that's a cool piano part, and it's crucial to this part of the arrangement because without the piano, you'd kind of just be getting this really straightforward power chord thing, but the piano adds some nice harmonic interest to what's going on. It also lines up with the backup vocals in a cool way midway through the phrase. So this song is in B. It's driven primarily by electric guitar, which sound tuned way down to B. That's very low for the electric guitar, and it gives it that crunchy from the depths of the ocean sound. They're just crunching along on a power chord in B on the piano that would sound like this. Then the actual piano part plays much higher. It starts on a B and then immediately moves outside of the key. So you're correct, Elijah, that this does move outside of the key, though it is anything but random. The piano part sounds like this. In the context of the song, with that B power chord going, you can hear a little more clearly what they're doing. This is what that sounds like. So the piano part starts on a B, which is the tonic in B minor, and then it immediately goes up a half step and an octave. So it jumps up to a C natural, which is called a flat ninth, and that's basically the most dissonant interval that there is. It then drops down to a C right above the B where it started, then it goes up to an A, then down to a D, then up to a G, and then right down to an F sharp. It has a nice shape to it. It forms a sort of triangle on its side. It jumps up to its largest interval at the start, and then it alternates between going down and up on ever smaller intervals, drawing closer and closer together until the final two notes are just a half step apart, and they're located right between the two starting notes. 
So a C natural is definitely outside of the key of B minor, but a flat two has its own distinct identity and function that just kind of works, especially in a song like this, where there isn't that much harmony to begin with, just power chords one and five, and then Amy Lee's melody notes on top. So while they're technically outside of the key on that C natural, a flat two is so self-consciously outside of the key that it actually doesn't really sound like they're doing something atonal or anything all that unusual. I think they just wanted something that sounded a bit off, a bit unsettling, and a flat two will definitely do that. I'd say the flat two and the tritone are kind of the first two places that most songwriters will go when they want that effect. I actually like that part there when the piano part goes from G to F sharp. The backup vocals sing that line with them, and it's a nice little bit of synergy between those two parts. So yeah, that's what's going on. It is not completely random. It's a nice little counter melody that to my ear adds a really important bit of harmonic and sonic flavor to what would otherwise be a very straightforward rock verse. Cool stuff. Tyler writes, My question stems from an obsession I have with odd time signatures and odd time feels, which are the most delicious ear candy. And just as an aside, I've never thought about ear candy as being delicious, which makes me think about actually eating candy with your ears. So you need like teeth in your ears. It starts to get kind of weird for me when I think about the term ear candy now. Like you're eating with your ears. Anyway, back to Tyler's question. He writes... In the song The Sky Was Pink, as recorded by Vessels, I'm not sure what's going on with the keyboard. Is it a polyrhythm? Maybe the keys are late? Or maybe I'm overthinking it? So this is The Sky Was Pink, as recorded by the band Vessels, though it was originally written by the electronic musician Nathan Fake, and it's a really cool song. And yeah, let's listen to the keys and see what's going on. So, okay, this is one of those questions where I gave the song a listen and I thought I had a simple answer. I got ready to record that answer and then I realized it's a little bit more complicated than I realized at first. And that little extra bit of complication is the sort of thing that makes it harder to properly explain without going down a bunch of rabbit holes. So let's see if I can do it as straightforwardly as possible. For starters, this song is moving between two chords. It's in E flat major and then it goes to A flat minor, the four minor, and then it goes back to E flat major. That's it. Very simple kind of drone sort of a thing. The keyboard part, it's really, it's an organ here, but that organ part is playing in second inversion, so it has the fifth on the bottom, there's a B flat on the bottom, E flat over B flat, and then it goes up to an A flat minor over B. So the bass note is just moving in half steps, that fifth going to the minor third. It's a nice sound going from one to four minor. This keyboard part rhythmically is doing what's known as a hemiola, which, as I mentioned in the intro, is a rhythmic pattern where there is a three-figure placed over a two-figure or a four-figure. A lot of times two and four are kind of interchangeable since they subdivide into one another. And instead of calling this a hemiola, a lot of times people will just call this three over four. They're kind of playing three over four here is how you'll hear this described. In this case, there's a new note every three sixteenth notes. There are four sixteenth notes in a beat, so by accenting every third one, it creates this layered rhythm that's displaced from the primary pulse and creates this kind of circling, spiraling effect. So here are some 16th notes on the hi-hat with the kick drum just playing downbeats. 
So if you count the 16th notes, it's 1 e and a 2 e and a 3 e and a 4 e and a. Alright, straightforward 16th notes. So now I'll play the snare drum every 4 16th notes, which turns out to be every beat. Not very exciting, but now let's put that snare drum on a hemiola and have it play every third 16th note. It'll have a pretty different rhythm. You hear it? Like one, two, three, 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 one, two, three. It's the kind of thing that's hard to get your head around at first, but once you get used to it, you can make some pretty cool grooves out of it. can be a bit of a tricky thing to get your head around in part because of the sequencing of the keyboard part, it goes between a few different voicings for each chord. On the E flat, there's the first voicing, which has a B flat on top, so that happens twice. And then the second one with a G on top happens three times. Then on A flat minor, the first one with a B on top happens twice. Then the next one with an A flat on top happens three times. But then it goes back to the first one three more times. And then it plays a new one with a D flat on top three more times. And then here's the tricky part. It goes over the bar line into the start of the next cycle. So it goes two, then three, then two, then three, then three, then three, and then back to the start. So if you can memorize those five different chord shapes and then just get that sequence of counting in your head, two, three, two, three, 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 and then back again, then you've got it. But here's the other tricky thing about this. The keyboard player doesn't always play it the same way. So sometimes they really commit to the hemiola and they keep that three over four going through the entire chord sequence, but sometimes they break the hemiola at the chord change like they do here in the intro. So it's a subtle shift, but they add a 16th note in the left hand right before the chord change, which breaks the hemiola and actually makes it easier to keep track of the groove. So instead of this unbroken chain of three 16th note groups, which can be pretty disorienting the longer it goes along, there's a break right at the key change. Listen for it. Here we go. It makes it almost sound like a montuno and makes it a lot easier to hear the downbeat because the bass in the left hand of the piano switches and hits that downbeat. After that initial time, the keyboard player stops doing that, so the hemiola remains intact through the whole cycle, which is a lot more disorienting sounding. But then a little bit later in the tune, they go back and break the hemiola one time through. So it's just inconsistent. See, it's not a bad thing, that inconsistency. It just makes it a bit tricky to lay out all the different things going on. And it's extra tricky because it's so granular that I'm sure some of you are out there listening like, what, how could anyone care about this? 
Anyway, I hope that answers your question, Tyler. This is one of those deceptively complex parts, in part just because I think it was recorded in the studio by a player who liked changing up their approach to the rhythmic figure from time to time, depending on how they were feeling it. But yeah, basically, it's a textbook hemiola, except when it isn't. Really cool tune, too. Next question comes from Ion, who writes, I was wondering if there are still new musical instruments being developed and if some find their way into an orchestra. To me, it seems like all the main instruments are hundreds of years old, except for the electronic ones, of course. I'd love to hear your insight on this. So as for whether new instruments are being added to the orchestra, I can't totally speak to that just because I don't play in orchestras and I'm not entirely sure what you mean by orchestra. Like a symphony orchestra has a fairly established instrumentation, but features new instruments all the time, especially when it comes to film scoring or contemporary composers. But again, this is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse. And also the word orchestra is just a very broad word that can mean a lot of things. And I'm not totally sure what you mean by that. But as to the meat of your question, and I think the more interesting part of it, yes, there are definitely new instruments being invented all the time. It's not quite like it was back in the heyday of the 20th century when inventors like Adolf Sachs, Leo Fender, the many synth designers who pioneered new sounds in synthesis in the latter half of the century. Like, it's not quite like that, but there are definitely people out there inventing new instruments. A few notable examples come to mind. Francois Louis, who is the designer of the quote-unquote ultimate ligature that many saxophonists, including my Myself, still use, that guy managed to find a way to take the ligature, which is the thing that holds your reed onto the mouthpiece, and actually improve the design after, I don't know, 80 years or something, and he really improved it. It's a great ligature. And he also invented an instrument called the olochrome. The olochrome is basically two soprano saxophones fused together into a single instrument that you can just play with a single set of lips and a single pair of hands. I've never played one, but it is crazy sounding. Here's a recording of jazz great Joe Lovano playing the Olochrome. So yeah, it's a pretty wild-sounding instrument, and it's a good example of a new instrument that expands on an existing instrument design and thus introduces new possibilities. So it's not a brand new thing, it's just like two soprano saxophones turned into a single instrument. Another instrument of that type that comes to mind is the Picasso 42-string guitar made famous by Pat Metheny. The Picasso was designed by Luthier Linda Manzier, and you really gotta see it to understand how wild it is. It has strings tuned in almost every possible direction. It looks like a cross between a lyre, a lute, a mandolin, a 12-string guitar, a 6-string guitar. I guess that's kind of what it is, actually. Nashville musician Matt Glassmeyer invented another one of my favorites, a percussion instrument that's going to let me kind of get around my policy of not swearing on this show because it's called the shitar, but that's guitar, G-U-I-T-A-R with an S-H. It's been popularized by a few different musicians. The person I've seen play it most is the brilliant drummer John O'Ricks, who incidentally is a fellow University of Miami jazz alum. He was at school a few years ahead of me, and we all basically worshipped him because he's one of the greatest drummers alive. Um, he often plays the shitar with the Wood Brothers, the amazing band that he plays with. It's basically an acoustic guitar body that's been jury-rigged with a bunch of cymbals and metal bars and different kinds of tech textures and varied surfaces that will allow a creative drummer, especially someone wearing various rings on their fingers, to build some really cool grooves while standing up and being very mobile on stage. 
This is from a video of Glassmeyer and Ricks demonstrating the instrument and getting some pretty cool grooves. You can think of that kind of like Flectones drummer Future Man's synth axe drumatar, but acoustic. And for that matter, surely the synth axe drumatar counts as a newly invented musical instrument. The Synthax Drumatar is an electronic drum set that's been reworked into a different shape and it allows you to play with your fingers more like a series of finger drums set on a box with a neck that looks basically like a guitar. It's actually based on the Synthax, which itself is an instrument that was invented by three English musicians in the 1980s. It's a familiar sound. It mostly sounds like drums when Future Man plays it, but the interface itself is what's innovative and it allows for interesting new musical ideas. And a similar new musical instrument that I actually play and really love is the wind synth, which I definitely count as a new type of instrument that's still being refined and iterated upon. Wind synths are electronic instruments that have breath and bite sensors to allow wind players to expressively control electronic sounds like synthesizers, all different kinds of synths, and also samples, really anything that follows MIDI input data. Examples like the Akai Iwi, the electronic wind instrument, have been around for decades, but my current wind synth, which I love, is the Roland Aerophone. That's only been out for a couple of years. Playing it feels to me like playing an entirely new kind of instrument. It's so cool. I love playing this thing. I can apply all of my sax chops to any sound that I can think of. I wish this had been around when I was in music school. I would have had so much fun with it. So yeah, that's just a few examples of instruments that I can think of off the top of my head that have been invented in the last few decades. And of course, there are a lot that I don't know about. If you've invented an instrument or come across an interesting musical invention, I hope you'll write in and tell me about it because I love to hear about new things that people are trying. So yeah, feel free to, to reach out, especially if you're an inventor yourself. I'd love to hear from you and see what you're up to. Anna writes, what do you think of the terms musician's musician or band's band? What qualifies an artist to gain this badge of honor? I've always thought this was kind of a silly concept, but there are definitely artists and musicians that you'll see out there who are praised as gods in the smaller music nerd world, but did not see serious commercial success or public notoriety. So yeah, this is a funny term and a funny concept. It's something you'll see across other types of media. Someone will call a director of filmmakers, filmmaker or an author, an author's author. It can seem sort of like a backhanded compliment since it implies technical expertise and technical innovation over broad commercial appeal. Though I do think that most musicians that I've seen called a musician's musician are pretty successful. They just aren't, you know, Taylor Swift or whatever. It's a real thing anyways. It's a way of describing the kind of art that is particularly impressive to other people who also make that art, which I guess means that it's sophisticated enough that the people who most appreciate it are the people who 
deeply understand how sophisticated it is. A lot of advanced and progressive jazz, or really progressive improvised music, which maybe feels like a broader and more inclusive term to call it, feels this way to me. Snarky Puppy, the band, is a good example of this. I'm sure a lot of people like Snarky Puppy who aren't musicians, but their music has always felt a little to me, um, and I don't mean this at all as an insult or anything, but it feels a little like music aimed at people who majored in jazz performance. And I mean, I'm one of those people, so I am the target audience of Snarky Puppy. The more I think about it, though, maybe it's about more than just technical skill. There's also a sort of cool factor associated with this. Anna mentioned a few artists that she thinks of as musicians, musicians, and she mentions Nels Klein as an example of one. And I'd say that's right. Nels is an incredible guitarist. He's also just such a creative artist. It's not just that he's a technically impressive guitar player. He's kind of a sonic painter. And I don't know. He's just the kind of guitarist that a nerd like me would call a sonic painter. And maybe that makes him a musician musician. Similarly, I've always seen the band Sparks called your favorite band's favorite band, which I think implies some of the same sort of underground cool factor. The idea that normies like you might like some famous band, but that famous band, they yearn to be as cool as this even hipper, less well-known band. But when you think you made it disappear, it comes again. Hello, I'm here and And I mean, a lot of that is marketing. Sparks is a really good band. I'm definitely going to talk about them at some point on the show. They've been requested quite a bit since Edgar Wright made that movie about them. But, you know, they're a great band. I think that whole your favorite band's favorite band thing just sounds like marketing copy to me. And a lot of this is just sort of scene stir kind of stuff. You know, musicians, musician. It's all different ways of categorizing art and telling people subtly or not so subtly what it is they're allowed to like and not like. So a lot of this stuff kind of ties in with some elements of uh, music criticism and the music culture in general that I don't really love. But it can still kind of be a fun shorthand sometimes. So anyway, those are a few thoughts on that concept, which I agree with you, Anna, is kind of a silly concept, even though it does have some meaning. Ian writes, Hi Kirk, I've got another counting slash groove question for a Q&A episode. If you're not sick of them yet... No, I'm not sick of them. I'll never get sick of counting slash groove questions. Ian continues, The Kishibashi song Ha 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 Part 2 starts out with a pretty standard 4-4 acoustic guitar and then layers in additional parts for the first minute or so of the track. So I'll just interrupt Ian and we can hear the opening part of that track. This is Ha 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 Part 2 from Kishibashi's 2014 record Laiyite. Yeah, to just explain what Ian is counting, this is very straightforward, 4-4 time. Here's the groove. It's 1, 2, 3, 4. Extremely cool. Don't worry, we'll talk about this a little bit later. I'd never heard Kishibashi before this question. It's very cool stuff. So here comes the change Ian is asking about. 
So Ian continues, to my untrained ear, this sounds like a shift into a 6-8 groove, but I've been racking my brain and I can't seem to think of another example like this where the snare is on 2 and 5 in a 6-beat bar. Am I counting it wrong? And if not, can you think of any other tunes with similar thump-pop configuration? And Ian adds, shout out to triple-click Discord mod Trent for introducing me to this album via the triple-click Discord album of the week club. Thanks, Kirk. Love the show. So for starters, I'll add a shout out to Trent, a very cool mod of the Discord for Triple Click, my video game podcast, a very lively Discord over there. They have a lot of fun and they do a weekly listening club that I'm not always able to keep up with, but they have a lot of really cool picks, including this one. I'd never heard this album and it's really cool. I've gone and listened to the whole thing. This is Lyite, or at least I suppose that's how you pronounce it, by Kishibashi, who is not a musician I was familiar with. He's a songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, who played with Of Montreal, which once I learned that, it all kind of came into focus a little bit because this album reminds me in some ways of that band of Montreal. A similar sound and a similarly pseudonymous kind of setup where Kevin Barnes really is of Montreal and it's a similar deal here with Kishibashi. So let's listen to that transition again. So Ian, I would really just call this 3-4. It's a pretty straightforward 3-4 groove with the snare on two of each bar, like this. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. It's really a backbeat of sorts, and I would say it's not that uncommon in 3-4 songs. This is a really inventive song, like the rest of this album, timbrally and rhythmically, though it is steadily in 3-4 through to the end. One thing I do want to point out since we're talking about hemiolas in this episode is there's a reverse hemiola 4 over 3 if you listen to some of the other parts going on on top of the groove. I think it's a guitar that's giving us this bum 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 That's like a hemiola turned on its head four over three. It's so cool, and even this ha 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 he's about to sing. Ha 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 ha. That's happening every third sixteenth note, it's just it becomes four over three because the song is in three. So that's really the answer. This is just a new section of the song. This isn't the first pop song to just completely change grooves halfway through. They do a kind of a retardando where it slows down and then just boom, we're into a new time signature and actually a new tempo. So it's really just a second section of the song that, like I said, plays through to the end. So the song just sort of transforms halfway through. So yeah, it's as simple as that. This is probably the most straightforward of the rhythmic questions that I've gotten on this episode. The next one we're about to do is a little bit more complicated or at least a little more mind-melting. But I mostly just wanted to include this because this album is so cool. I hope that some of you will go check it out. Laiite by Kishibashi from 2014. Uh, Just a great album, a real pleasure to listen to all the way through. One of those albums that's overflowing with fun ideas. You can just really feel how much fun he had putting this whole thing together. So I recommend the record and think some of you out there will probably really like it. 
Our next rhythmic counting question comes from Mike, who writes, Hi, Kirk, what exactly is going on in the 30-second drum intro to the Fish song Mound? It presents itself as a basic mid-tempo shuffle beat, but there's some serious rhythmic displacement going on to the point that the steady clapping that accompanies the drumming fails to line up past the beginning couple of bars or so. Is the drummer just moving from common time to odd meters, or is something else going on? P.S. It was always fun to see this one played live and to watch the audience attempt and usually fail to clap along with the intro themselves. All right, so this is an intro I've been familiar with for a long time. I remember the first time I heard this when I was a wee lad learning jazz, and it cracked me up. This is the intro to Fish's song Mound, which is a track off of their 1993 album Rift, which may be my favorite. Favorite fish album. Not sure. Haven't thought about it too much, but Rift, good record. Oh, pretty straightforward groove, right? Sure. <laughs> so if you've kept track of the groove by now, well, good for you. So my advice here is basically focus on the eighth notes and hold on for dear life. Fish drummer John Fishman is deliberately trying to throw the listener off, and he's doing it not by changing the time signature, just by breaking and scrambling his groove to trip you up at every opportunity. As it happens, the clapping is actually in the same place throughout, so if you do focus really hard and count, you can clap consistently through the whole thing. You just have to really focus on your own internal counting and not get thrown off by what Fishman is doing on the drums. So this is a classic 6-8 shuffle groove. That's where it starts. You've heard this in a million songs. Dun, 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 dun. That's one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. So there are three eighth notes in each beat. That's what 6-8 means. And the clapping comes every other downbeat. So it's basically a backbeat. Bop, 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 bop. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Clapping on the four every time. And the clapping is on the four throughout this whole thing. It's just the drums change it up. So at first, it's just a really straightforward 6-8 shuffle. Just 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Now, this is where things get weird, but remember, the clapping stays in the same place throughout. So the clapping is always on that 4th, 8th note. Listen to the next couple of bars. 2, 3, 4... Now, I'm betting that sounds crazy to you, but I promise it's really just still 6-8. It's still the same number of eighth notes, and the clapping is still happening in the same place. It's just really hard to focus because the drums are so disjointed. So let me play those four bars again, and this time I'll count along with it. Two, three, four. One, two, three, four, five, six. 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 
So it sounds weird, but that clap can really anchor you. And if you can make it through that second set of four bars and still be hitting the clap in the right place, you're probably golden. I'm guessing that that's where 98% of people lose the thread. So let's go through the first eight bars starting at the beginning and then going through that first change up. And I'll count and clap along and just try to stay focused on that clap and on my counting, which remember is consistent. And that clap is always going to be on the fourth eighth note of every bar. Here we go. And one, two, three, four, five, six, 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 one, two, three, four, five, six. So that's the trick. You just have to trust that the claps are always in the same place and then really resolutely count in your head, focusing more on the pulse and less on the individual elements of the drum set, kick drum, snare drum, and hi-hat that Fishman is hitting, since too much focus on that can confuse your ear because he's playing with your innate expectations of a thump, pop, sizzle, shuffle groove in order to trip you up, like someone putting words of a familiar sentence into a random order. Same words, same sentence length, different order, becomes words order, same different same length sentence. Okay, so let's count this whole sucker down, starting from the top all the way up until the band comes in. And one last thing to keep in mind is that the band enters halfway through a phrase, which works rhythmically, but it can make you second guess yourself at the very end. Okay, ears on, lock your internal pulse. Here we go. And one, two, three, four, five, six, 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 one, two, three, four, five, six. And there you have it. It's a very funny musical joke. And this whole song is kind of a joke, a bit of a goof on this very familiar groove, like right here. As you can hear with Trey's guitar over on the left, this whole song is moving pretty far away from this kind of a groove, and the majority of Mound has nothing to do with a standard swampy blues shuffle. So anyway, there's your answer, Mike. This is actually a really good test of your internal counting. So I hope everyone out there will track down this song and see if you can get to the point where you can count it confidently despite all of the ways that John Fishman is trying to throw you off. And then, I mean, maybe if you're lucky, you'll get into an audience that can do it all together, but that's asking a lot of a big group of people.
Let's do one more counting question. This one is a little bit more straightforward, so we'll sort of wind things down with the counting with a more straightforward one that doesn't require quite as much mental gymnastics. This comes from Jonathan, who writes, Why do I find it so hard to count the guitar intro to I'd Love to Change the World by 10 Years After? The timing seems to make sense when the drums come in, but then the drums drop out and I lose the thread. All right, well, let's listen to the guitar intro to I'd Love to Change the World by 10 Years After. Alright, so we're in four here. One, two, three, four. But it is a little deceptive what's going on with the guitar. Listen again. So this song is actually very straightforward, but a couple of the chord changes are anticipated, so they happen an eighth note before the downbeat, and I think that's what's throwing you off, especially once it's taken and broken down into a guitar part. So the first chord is E minor, and the second chord is G major, really standard chord progression. If you go from E minor to G major and change chords on the downbeat, you get this. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That's not what's happening, though. They anticipate that first chord change, that G major, so it actually happens on the and of four, the upbeat of the fourth beat. So it sounds like this. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Hear the difference? So the same thing happens on the next two chords. It goes from A minor up to C and does the same thing. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So when you play the first four chords, every other chord is anticipated. It comes on the end of four instead of the downbeat. A one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. A one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four. Now that's kind of easy to follow, but that's because I'm playing the chords all at once on piano. What's going on on the guitar is actually this more complex guitar figure. So let me play piano along with the recording, along with that guitar part, and I think it'll make it easier to count what's going on and hear those anticipated chords. There actually is a piano doing that on the recording, but this will foreground it a little bit more so you can really hear where the chord is changing in the bar. I'll count along with it as well, just so you can notice how every other chord starts on the and of four instead of on the downbeat. And one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. Now, crucially, once the drums come in, that anticipated chord change stops happening, all the chords change on the downbeat. And I think, Jonathan, that's one of the reasons that you have a harder time counting the guitar part when it's by itself, because when the drums aren't in, it is actually a subtly different figure. So really, you just gotta work on it, get it in your ear, and practice counting along with it. One, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. This is a cool song also, I wasn't really familiar with it, so thanks for sending it in. Our next question comes from Adam. Adam writes, I'm hoping you can settle a minor disagreement I'm having with a friend over the opening chorus of Bad Blood 
by Taylor Swift. And as a side note, this is very exciting for me. I love it when people write in with musical disagreements that they're having and ask me to weigh in. Listeners at StrongSongsPodcast.com. Let me weigh in. I love doing it. Okay, back to Adam. Adam writes, this is a tough one because my argument, or at least the way that I hear this, is based on something that isn't there. Okay, so the song starts with only vocals, but I hear it implied that those vocals are over an E minor chord, while my friend thinks that it's implied that it's over the only chord progression in the song, which is C major, G major, D to E minor. So let's listen to what Adam is talking about. This is the beginning of Bad Blood, and I'm going to go with the recently released Taylor's version off the Taylor's version of 1989, since I listened to both that and the original, and they're pretty similar, at least for our intents and purposes. So here's the beginning of Bad Blood that Adam is asking about. Okay, so Adam's question is, what chords do I think are being implied there by that melody? And his friend thinks that it is the only other chord progression that plays during that section later in the song. So back to Adam, who writes, Logically, I understand my friend, and I more or less agree with him, but when the C chord does come in for the second chorus, it sounds like a different chord progression to me than the admittedly imagined first half of the progression. So this is a fun question, since, yeah, it's all about pinning down an imagined harmony that is only possibly implied and regardless exists only in the ear of the listener. Or is that the only place that it exists? Well, let's not get ahead of ourselves. So let's go back and listen to that opening verse first. Cause baby now we got bad blood. You know it used to be bad love. So take a look what you've done. Cause baby now we got bad blood. Hey! Now we got Adam says that he hears this as being an E minor so I'll play along with it on piano now just with an E minor chord and we'll get a sense of what that sounds like. What it is that Adam hears in his mind when he listens to this. Cause baby now we got Okay, so Adam's friend hears the chords that happen later in the song over this part because, well, that kind of makes sense. If you hear it later, you're going to probably start hearing those chords anytime they sing their refrain from the song. So that sounds right, but I do have to say it doesn't quite sound right there at the beginning of the song. Just in a vacuum, I get what Adam's saying. The vocals only refrain at the beginning just has a pretty different energy from the one later after the chords come in. There's just a feeling of completion to this, like it's the second half of an equation, not like it's a complete version of what we had already heard a cappella. It's a fine distinction, I know, but I do kind of hear it, and I get what Adam is talking about. That said, I couldn't shake the feeling that I'd actually heard this with some sort of an e-pulse going on underneath it during that a cappella refrain. And then I remembered there were actually two versions of this song released. And I don't mean Taylor's version and the original. In addition to the version that we just heard, there's also a single edit of this song featuring Kendrick Lamar. I can't take it back. Look where I'm at. 
And on that version, there's something new added to the second a cappella refrain. You hear it? Yes, on the version featuring Kendrick, there's a synth bass pulse that plays during the a cappella vocal sections, hitting and repeating an E, the very key E minor that Adam is hearing. So Adam, I don't know if you've heard this version at some point and your subconscious is remembering it and that's why you've always heard those acapella refrains as being in E, but either way, I think this demonstrates that Taylor thinks of those acapella refrains as having their own harmonic identity separate from the later section that goes into G major. So there you go. I think you have some actual evidence for your side of the argument in this one. Thanks for writing in with it and I hope it doesn't cause any bad feelings between you and your friend. Our next question comes from Joel, who writes, I recently traveled with my wife to Los Angeles, where I attended Elton John's Farewell Yellow Brick Road concert at Dodgers Stadium. Excited as we were to see Elton John and be present for this moment in history, we were both stunned by the volume of the music, overwhelmed by the solid walls of sound, which we found to be quite literally deafening. Even with the earplugs that we had brought, and much of the time our hands over our ears, we found it way too loud to enjoy, which was really a shame. First question. We'd not been to a stadium concert in many years. My wife had actually seen Elton John and his first appearance at Dodger Stadium back in the 1970s. Have these stadium concerts gotten louder? We noticed other people without earplugs who seemed to have no problem with the volume, so far as we could tell, though we weren't inside their heads. Could it just be that the two of us in our early 60s are super sensitive to the volume? Or perhaps my ear sensitivity has grown by listening to strong songs? Or are people just developing a tolerance for increased volume, listening to loud louder and louder music going deaf as they do so. So Joel has a few more questions, but I'll tackle this one first. I'm not sure if stadium concerts are louder now than they used to be, though I know that shows are bigger now than they were in the 70s, at least on average. So it stands to reason that the average stage PA might be putting out more wattage just to fill a bigger space. But that's not something that I have expertise in. So um, the information might be out there, but I am not sure. But it's also different for every show. And I'm sad but not surprised to hear about your experience overall. I personally think that the majority of live concerts, particularly big ticket stadium shows like this, are pretty appallingly loud, even dangerously loud. I don't know what there is to be done about it. There's just been this kind of sound inflation and people sort of expect things to be loud because that's become synonymous with excitement. But it's just way too loud. It's ludicrously loud and you often can't even hear the music. So I know I kind of sound like an old man yelling at a cloud, but that is how I feel. It's it's rare that I'll go to a live show that I'll enjoy 
joy, and I certainly wear hearing protection at every show that I go to. Joel, as to the sensitivity that you're describing, you definitely can grow more sensitive to sound as you get older for a number of different reasons. I'll talk more about that in a minute since that's actually something that affects me. I don't think that the discomfort that you're describing is because of listening to strong songs. That's more of an intellectual sensitivity that I'm hoping to cultivate with this show, but I don't think that it should affect how you physically react to different volume levels when listening to music. But I'd say that however anyone else at the show might have been reacting, your best bet is to listen to your own comfort level. It's possible and even likely that the people around you who weren't wearing ear protection were risking damaging their hearing just by being there. And that's the case anytime a person spends a prolonged period in a very loud environment, say 90, 100, 110 decibels and higher. Joel continues with the next part of his question. Looking at Elton, who was very far away from us, but whose face was huge on the screen, he seemed to be wearing no earplugs of any sort. Any thoughts on how continual exposure to loud music can affect performers' hearing? So I was actually surprised to hear this from Joel, that Elton doesn't perform with in-ear monitors, because so many musicians these days do. But I looked around and I actually found a recording of maybe this very performance from Elton John's YouTube channel, Dodger Stadium in 2022, and sure enough, he is not wearing in-ear monitors. You're actually hearing excerpts from that performance of the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, which I also did an episode about. Great song, and man, Elton sounds really good even all these years into his career. It's pretty amazing. So anyway, Elton is not wearing in-ear monitors. However, his entire band do appear to be wearing in-ears. Well, his drummer is wearing headphones, but the same difference. Anyway, usually when a band is wearing in-ears, their onstage volume usually isn't actually all that loud, and Elton is out front away from the band anyways. Particulars aside, on a stage that big with a venue that large, it's likely that the sound is dramatically different on stage from what you're hearing out in the audience. The band is many feet back from the PA speakers and they're behind the speakers, so the bulk of the sound is moving out and away from them. It's probably still pretty loud. The stage monitors, which are the speakers on stage that let the musicians hear themselves, Elton has three big monitors right down to his right. Those have to be loud enough to overcome the sound of a huge cheering crowd, bounce back from the mains, just a lot of sort of general ambient noise, but it's doubtless a lot quieter on stage and just more under control than it is out in front of the business end of those speakers. That said, I generally think it's wise for professional musicians who perform every night to invest in a good pair of in-ear monitors and to work with sound engineers to get their own personal mix that they can control from their remote pack. Continual exposure to loud music has ruined countless musicians' hearing over the years, and given that the technology exists today to protect one's ears on stage, it's just absolutely worth the expense, and there's no good reason to just take the hit night after night. That said, Elton John has been doing this for decades. It seems like he knows what works for him, so there you go. Another question from Joel on this, who says, for a situation like we were in, earplugs seem an unsatisfactory solution because they muffle the sound rather than turning down the volume, which is hardly an ideal way to listen to music. Do you have any recommendations in this realm? And I do, actually. I've mentioned before on the show that I have custom-made earplugs that I had made out of molds so they fit directly into my ear canal. I wear them whenever I go to any kind of a live concert, anywhere where there's going to be amplified music. I can put different attenuated 
millimeters on them, depending on what kind of show it is. So they can cut 10 decibels or 15 decibels or 25 decibels. They're kind of variable. They're pretty comfortable. And crucial to what you mentioned, Joel, they do not cut high frequencies like the kind of more blunt force, just heroes or whatever, you know, the little foam earplugs that you wad up and let expand in your ear canal do. Those definitely cut high frequencies and they make listening to music lose something. Custom fit earplugs use attenuators that cut evenly across the frequency spectrum so you don't lose highs nearly as much. And I'll say custom earplugs are kind of pricey. Mine cost a couple hundred dollars. Obviously, that's a worthwhile investment for me. It might not be for you, but there are a lot of different brands uh, that make kind of middle of the road musicians earplugs that are designed to save a lot of the high frequencies without requiring you to go to an audiologist and get the custom molds and pay all that extra money for custom earplugs. They just are kind of better than the wadded up foam ones that you shove in your ears. So if you look around online, you'll find a whole bunch of different brands. I think they're all pretty good. I certainly haven't used them all, but with a little looking, you can find something that's better than just a foam earplug if you don't want to go all the way to getting custom plugs. Joel wraps up his email by writing, Finally, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about listening volume in general. I know that my mother went almost deaf in later years due to sound exposure in her youth. Given the great training you're offering for our ears, it seems you might have some thoughts about music volume so we can appreciate what we hear throughout our whole lives. So I do have some final thoughts on this. Some of these I have mentioned before on the show, but I will just say them again because you can never say them too many times. I've mentioned before that I've been trying to get to the bottom of some hearing issues that I've been having for the past year and a half that manifest not as hearing loss, but as hypersensitivity. And it's really scary. It's made me have to take hearing protection even more seriously than I already took it. And I've always taken it pretty seriously. I'm still in the diagnostic phase. I don't totally know what it is. So I'll talk about it more at some point once I actually know what's going on. But suffice it to say, hearing problems are really bad and they're profoundly scary because of how they impact your ability to listen to and play music. And they don't always manifest as gradually lost frequencies in your old age, they can get you earlier in life than you think, and they can manifest as much more difficult to deal with issues. So I'll just close by urging you all to wear hearing protection at concerts, invest in some better than entry level earplugs, and also to keep an eye on your surroundings and keep track of the decibel level wherever you are. I know a lot of smartphones have added the ability to monitor how loud the music that you're listening to is. I know iPhones do that anyways. Definitely turn that on. But also, there's this great app that I have right on the home screen of my phone. It's made by NIOSH, the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health. And it can just give you a quick, rough estimate of the decibel level wherever you're currently standing. And if you start using it, you'll definitely be surprised how often you find yourself in settings that exceed 90 decibels, which is broadly the threshold that you want to stay below. So yeah, download that app, get some better earplugs, and protect your hearing. I know I've talked about this before. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but it's a serious issue and I want everyone out there to take it seriously. You only get one pair of ears, keep them safe, and you'll be listening to music into your old age. And that'll do it for this latest Q&A. Thanks to everyone who wrote in. And remember, you too could have a question featured on the show. Just write to listeners at strongsongspodcast.com. 
to send it along. We're nearing the end of season five. We've got a very cool finale coming up, and then I'll be taking a break for the holidays. But in the meantime, I hope that you'll consider chipping in to support this show. Strong Songs is such a labor of love for me. This is the most I've ever loved working on something, and I'm so proud of the fact that I make this show with only direct support from listeners. So thanks so much to all of my patrons who support the show, and if you're not yet a patron but you think you might want to be, go to patreon.com slash strongsongs to find out how you can do so. And I'll actually end this Q&A episode with one more question, which comes from listener Tom. Tom wants to know, why is it that every outro song soloist on Strong Songs starts and stops their solo in the same place. Did I give them directions? Are they following the lead of the very first soloist? Or do jazz musicians just instinctively know what they're supposed to do? And the answer is, I give everyone instructions. But in the spirit of that, let's call back to the very first outro soloist, Mr. BJ Cord on the trumpet. So stick around for BJ, and I'll be back in two weeks with more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.